0: thank you everyone for joining us on the puget systems podcast my name is matt bach and i'm joined here today by uh, maxim jago and we're going to be talking about trends and editorial opportunities for content creators you know with everything with the coronavirus right now but then also looking more towards, towards the future uh so thank you maxim for joining us
1: oh absolutely it's a great pleasure to be here thanks for having me
0: yeah so uh before we get into our topic uh why don't you give just a little bit of a background on yourself
1: uh, well, I I probably have three hats. So I'm a director, a filmmaker, editor. Um, I've directed about thirty short films. I'm just in post right now with my first fiction feature film, which is a, a supernatural thriller. Which we're really, well, touch wood, he says, touching his head. We're, we're pretty pretty happy with the look of so far. We're working on that. Uh, I'm also a post production specialist. So I'm I'm probably best known because I write the official book on Adobe Premiere Pro. But I also record. Um, uh, Quite a lot of the official uh, training videos for Avid Media Composer, uh, wrote the official book on um, Adobe Audition and the official book on Grass Valley EDIUS. So I speak a lot at film festivals and conferences about filmmaking and post-production and technology in particular, moving into VR or, or XR as it's now called. I've recorded uh, 2,000 tutorials on post-production so I get funny looks from people at um, conferences and film festivals because a lot of people have Listen to my tutorials, but they never show my face, so nobody knows it's me. And they, they feel like I, I know that guy, but I, I have no idea why. And, and uh, you know, uh, learning is quite hard work, so it's not always a good feeling when they hear my voice. You know, they're wondering if I owe them money or something. <laughs> uh, but the other, uh, but they're right, you know, they're nice when they find out. Uh, the other thing that I do is I consult as a futurist, so I uh, consult for a number of organizations on future technology, emerging technologies. And in particular, my focus is on the human experience. And I suppose my, my core principle is that we haven't changed very much for a couple of 100,000 years. Uh, but we are adaptable pattern finding primates. And so we adjust quite quickly to new situations, of course, we're discovering in the world today. Um, but how can technology enable us to fulfill our potential as people? rather than us having to adapt to the technology? How can it serve our fundamental needs and help us to live rich and fulfilling lives? I think that's a very interesting topic. And it's one that's, um, there's technologies coming online now that are really explosively impacting our potential to collaborate, which is a a very fundamental um, human drive. So those are kind of the three main trends, filmmaking and writing books and post and futurism.
0: Yeah, so you're really like a, perfect person to have on a podcast thank you very much for coming on because i mean especially right now with the coronavirus and the lockdown everyone is having to get very creative um i would say and a lot of that creativity is coming out in really cool and unique ways like i'm seeing things on youtube and you know things like that that are honestly the things i've never seen people do before people do have extra time right now to try things and be creative and that side of it seems terrific uh to me and to a lot of people uh but it's definitely affecting a lot of uh people in more negative ways or just in ways that they're having to adapt uh, kind of like we were saying before hmm. and before we started recording this podcast we were talking a little bit about how just our how our own work ha- has been affected um, so do you want to go into a little bit you know kind of what we were talking about before but even expanding on like how how is all this lockdown affecting how people are working you know from the actual people who would normally be filming or freelancers or, you know, headhunters? Yeah, how, how is this changing things?
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, I mean, those kinds of questions are always context specific, aren't they? And as we know from the coverage in the media, that there are some people who simply do have to go somewhere to work. Uh, you know, if you're frontline staff in, in um, um, hospitals, for example, you've, you've got to go to work. But if, um, if you're doing the kind of work that I do, you know, I get on location as often as I can. I get on set as much as possible. But I would say you know, most filmmakers spend most of their time uh, working in some kind of office environment or working on a laptop and having meetings. It's ironic because one of the reasons I got into filmmaking was specifically so that I would not have to work in an office. And what do you know? <laughs> but I think that for, for many people this lockdown is uh, not that impactful. Because it's, uh, it's just business as usual Working you're working on a machine, you're having remote meetings, you're working on projects remotely. But one of the things that I found for myself is that my social needs were being served very well by those meetings, I'd be having lunches with people almost every day, I'd be having meetings, dinners, and a lot of um, Work takes place at those meetings, and of course, we can replace those face to face meetings by looking at pixels on a screen. It's never the same, but it's you know, we can connect with people and have a conversation just like we are now. But it's looking at pixels is not the same as looking at a person, it's not the same. VR helps because um, the way that we interpret nonverbal signals is in context. So if you're sharing a virtual context with somebody, the way that the avatar, the way the person moves, the timing of their speech, and so on, is in response to a shared environment. And that, I think that's one of the key reasons that people refer to virtual reality as a kind of empathy engine, it's absolutely profound, um, the impact it could have, but not that many people have VR headsets yet. I don't know if it's maybe 14, 15 million headsets out in the wild. Now, it's not enough for it to really be the norm for communication. So I think that what we're finding is that, you know, if we focus specifically on film production, obviously people cannot get out and shoot and people are becoming very inventive. Um, I've seen some beautiful examples of music performance where everyone comes into a a meeting and thankfully the the lag is just low enough that everyone can play pretty much in time and produce music together. It's absolutely beautiful. But from a film production point of view, we're really focusing on development. And, you know, development can take a long time. But we're doing development work, we're doing planning, strategizing. But I think there's an underlying emotional barrier. You know, there's a, there's a kind of a block that everybody's feeling, which is that we don't know when the lockdown is going to be opened up. I think we all agree it needs to happen. It's all necessary. There's no oppressor forcing us to do it. Obviously, there's legal consequences, but we all approve of what's happening. But if we don't know when we can open up and do things, uh, it's difficult to draw a line in the sand or put a date on the calendar and say this is when it's going to happen. Uh, One of my roles is I created a new conference in Reykjavik in Iceland, which is the uh, creativity conference. And we just got to the point where the website was live and people could buy tickets when the pandemic hit and the lockdown started to kick in and we um, we had to postpone for a year. And actually, we're quite pleased about it because it means we've got more time to develop a fantastic conference. So I think um, it's kind of a willy answer, isn't it? I don't think there's any one bit of impact. But what we are seeing, of course, is the development of things like people are using Unreal and virtual characters to develop increasingly compelling visual content using advanced animation. And it's You know, it's wonderful, but I think there's a finite number of people that have the passion for that detail work to produce that kind of content. And those people that are doing it are absolutely rocking it.
0: Yeah, I'd actually love to dive into that a little bit more, because to me, that's something that's super interesting as well. I mean, when VR first started coming out, I mean... Because we're you know selling workstations and we're on a lot a lot of times our, our customers are on the forefront of a lot of this stuff like we had the original Oculus dev kits and to play around with we played around with most of the headsets yeah. and all that and yeah it is amazing how good it is um I know yeah. oh man it's been a little bit while since I've had any of them on but one of them uh, you know they have uh, they track your fingers even so you can point you can do thumbs up and those kind of motions and just being able to move your hands and express yourselves that way is very amazing. Um, but I've also been noticing it was that I think Adobe Max last year that there was so much, uh, so many booths uh, doing things like facial tracking and body tracking mm-hmm. without mocap suits or just mocap suits. And it just makes me wonder like, man, if there's that much work going on, you know, right now is really a great time for people to be experimenting with those kind of things. You'll get that facial tracking you know, applica- app running that just runs on your iPhone and, you know, Try to port those things into Unreal and Unity. Uh, do you think those things are going to become a major staple in a lot of people's toolboxes in the future?
1: Well, it's a great question. I, you know, I, I think parts of them are. If you look at the development of complex technologies, what tends to happen, I think, is specific parts of that technology um, prove to be useful for a lot of people. And those specific parts tend to be developed and developed and simplified and automated increasingly intelligently until lots and lots of people can use it. And uh, to take a really simple example, look at um, mouse pointer smoothing in first-person shooter computer games. If you actually tracked the movement of the mouse without any smoothing at all, it'd be all over the place. It'd be on, on, you wouldn't be able to view the thing. But gradually, these intelligent algorithmic systems were developed to get what feels like a responsive um, pov which is actually being controlled and monitored by the computer and i think with things like face tracking you know adobe have done amazing work with the character animator application to track your face without any you don't need any spots or anything you can just speak to the camera uh the, just the web camera on your computer and it and it works so i do think that we'll see more and more of that but if you look at things like, for example, I'm working on a film project right now. We're developing a project called Jolly's Garden. It's a, a beautiful, powerful psychological thriller that we're going to shoot 2D. But we're also, in parallel, planning a full, true VR version. And I'm I'm coining a, uh, what I, I think is a new phrase. I'm calling it a VR film. And the reason I'm making that distinction is that it's not interactive. It's not an experience that you can participate in it's an experience that you witness and you uh, watch the story unfold but you can walk around the environment and uh, and choose where you stand and what you look at and we're looking at the technology to capture the performances and it's really difficult to choose because what you're describing now you know we're looking at uh, either producing a full cg version where we have multiple scans of the actors in different costumes and we produce a true CG version that's photorealistic? Or do we do motion capture with skins? Or do we do true volumetric video capture? And a lot of these systems require a significant amount of finishing. So you can capture a few minutes of it, and it looks great. But when you really get down to it, there's some fluctuation in what the camera picked up and that kind of thing. But then you look at the, um, the version 2 lighthouses that you were just describing. Those submillimeter fingertip tracking uh, without a controller. And there are already some mixed reality experiences uh, where you can... I'm trying to remember the name of the thing in, um, in Glendale in Los Angeles. There's a you, you step into a virtual world and you're wearing a headset and you look at your own hand through the headset and it's a stormtrooper's glove. Hmm. And you can move the individual fingers. Absolutely amazing experiences. So I do think that these things will merge into our daily lives as creatives, but not all of it. I still think there's going to be a realm of uh, specialism for people who really put the time into understanding it deeply.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, even with the technology, there is still all of the um, you, you have to figure out how what to do with it. Yeah. I mean, VR has been around for a, a while now. Yeah. Know, at least, oh, I, I don't even want to guess how long it's been around now. Uh, and people have been making, you know, films in VR or 360 movies and such. And I just keep hearing over and over and over that it's so difficult to do because people aren't used to doing it. They're used to like pointing a camera and okay, that's what the audience is going to be paying attention to. But as soon as you go into 360, like you don't know which direction they're going to be looking. They might be looking in the totally wrong way mm. and then something very important happens. Uh, so I, I've been hearing that a lot that they have to almost take a step backwards in time or not even really back in time, but to a different industry and looking at like theater. How do to, how to theater uh, how do they direct your eye?
1: Well, I think that's exactly right. And, and we need to make a clear distinction between 360 video, which a lot of people refer to as VR video, because you need a VR headset to look at it, and true VR, which is a fully three-dimensional environment that you can walk around and navigate and explore. There are two very different mediums and uh, you know very different production techniques. And certainly when people started out shooting 360 video, there was exactly that dilemma that you're describing. And one of the solutions that people came up with, which I, I, was not, I did not find very compelling, was to just have things happening in every direction. But then you end up with one of those kind of choose-your-own-adventure nightmares where you want to look in every direction all at once and you can't enjoy any of it. Now what we're finding is that classic cinematography techniques that are used to direct the gaze of your, um, of your audience... Uh, Those techniques can be used in 360 video and even in uh, VR, for that matter, as well. And again, we're seeing this amazing merging of, um, if you like, the psychology of games development, merging into the realms of narrative storytelling with these new technologies. It's really fascinating because, you know, we're in the business of creating the illusion of experience and the part of your brain that has experiences they say does not differentiate very well between something that you witness, imagine, remember, or you're experiencing live. And so with these uh, technologies, we're finding that we just need to trigger the perceptions of the audience in the right ways. And you get the emotional response. Essentially, what we're trying to do is have elicit an emotional reaction. So for example, with 360 video, you know, our eyes are drawn towards areas of high contrast and high color saturation and so in classic cinematography if you want to draw your audience's attention to an area of the screen you just need to in, very often in post but you can do some on location you need to lower the level of contrast perhaps make it very slightly darker where you want the audience to not look and they will naturally tend to look where it's brighter and higher contrast it takes about something like 2.7 seconds, you know, and you can you can clock it and count it and you can use that as part of your planning for storytelling and the narrative. And one of the other developments is that people discovered that most people don't want to do that exorcist's head spinning thing and look in every direction. So in fact, a lot of people now are shooting uh, 270 degree video or 250 degree. And I can never remember the, la- the name of the company, but there's a fantastic lens you can get that will shoot 270 degrees. So with a single lens on uh, a camera body, you can produce, uh, there's no stitching required. You can produce what's still technically called 360 video, but it's a single, very high resolution, high quality image. And, and so it gets much easier to post-produce and uh, deliver. It's exciting days, I think, for this kind of technology.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually hadn't heard about uh, you know, that 250 or 270 degrees quite yet. But yeah, you're right. Like yeah, People don't want to look behind them you know, but they will look side to side, they want to be immersed. But yeah, there's no need for it to be fully 360 and to not need to do 360. I'm sure it makes the actual shoot so much easier. Um, You know, I've heard about, you know, people doing 360 videos and, you know, they have to yell and then all of the, you know, crew has to disappear and hide behind trees and and (laughs) because like they can't be in the shot. Uh, But with that, just make sure that people are nice and far back behind you, you know, behind the camera and it's okay.
1: It's interesting. Yeah, and actually what, what makes it immersive is is less It's less that you can turn your head in any direction and choose what you look at. It's more that you can tilt your head. Or if you shift in your seat and you're breathing and your head moves a little bit, which changes the framing of the shot, it feels like you're inside the picture because what your field of view changes in a very natural way to match the movement of your head. And one of the things that we've discovered is that... Uh, I forget the number now, but it's... I'm going to get this wrong, you know, but it's something like 50 milliseconds or more is enough for an audience to start feel like there's a lag, there's a delay, it doesn't feel right. So what we're seeing, for example, with the new generation of virtual reality headsets, they have a very, very low lag, and that reduces the disorienting effect that people get when they're looking at virtual reality. And, And that disorientation is that, your inner ear is telling you that your head is pointing in one direction and your vision catches up a moment later. It's very confusing. People get headaches and they can, get, they can feel nausea and all sorts. So as we're getting sharper vision and more responsive headsets, the experience is beginning to feel more natural. Actually, there was a big thing about this with tablets and phones. When um, people were studying the speed at which the interface of something like a, an iPad or a you know, um, if you're using uh, an Android-based um, tablet computer, when you swipe with your finger, is there a delay behind the movement of your finger? And if there's no perceivable delay, it feels real for your brain and you engage with it int- intuitively. But if there is a perceivable delay, then it really creates a barrier for the experience for the viewer.
0: Yeah, all that stuff is so interesting. That, that just made me think that uh, when we... When vr was first the thing we got some of those early dev kits uh in our shop just to you know play with them and understand them yeah i remember coming home several days and just laying on the couch and trying to fall asleep because i felt sick and i the only thing that fixed it for me was sleep and it was kind of miserable yeah uh but now the ones like i i have a, a you know oh it's starting mm-hmm. to get a few years old now just a galaxy s8 with the uh, the whole the headset thing from samsung and it's really good and you know that's several year old technology now and that's just from my phone like that's nothing expensive you know for most people
1: yeah i'm at a a difficult crossroads for myself for for vr hardware i've decided i've been using other people's hardware and i decided right um, it's time for me to get my own vr headset and Mm -hmm. i'm just going to ask around and i'm going to i'm going to spend the money and i'm going to get a vr headset and which one do you get because the current generation of VR headsets, they're great in this way. The resolution's good. You know, HP has a great one. Um, I tried the foveated rendering headset. I didn't, it didn't. For me, it didn't hit the spot. I think for industrial purposes, it would be absolutely great. But uh, everyone seems to be pointing to the, uh, the Valve index. Everyone seems to be saying that's the headset of choice these days. But I think that we've crossed a critical threshold where the resolution is high enough and the responsiveness is high enough, the lighthouses are responsive enough and precise enough, that we can now move into really exploring this uh, space, if you like, of producing content in VR, whether it's 360 video or true VR content. It's really exciting days. And also, of course, uh, you know, there hasn't been much news about it, but we're really, really close to natural language interaction with computers now for consumers. Um, one big issue with it is that it's working pretty well in the lab, but we're probably going to have to push the processing out to edge computing on people's devices, which is fine, except how do you protect the data and you know the Semantic learning models that the AI uses to understand the user, but that's a security, you know, data lockdown issue. But we're very close to being able to hold a natural conversation with a virtual person. And I've been saying for a long time that I think we're going to have private personal assistants that we virtualized initially, and ultimately we'll we'll have a physical presence um, with robotics. But we're we're so close to that, and I think as a creative. We're going to begin to see, initially, we, I mean, we've already got um, procedurally generated movement for background characters in scenes where they have natural gait and movement. i uh, heard that for some time. But I think we're going to begin to see um, some secondary characters in stories where their performance is procedurally generated and not directly controlled manually by an animator.
0: Yeah, actually, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, it seems like, you know, we were going to be, you know, going to NAB here pretty soon. Mm. And I, the last couple of years I've gone to, oh, not every single one, but a good chunk of the sessions that were about machine learning and AI. And yeah, it's amazing to see how much work is being done on, you know, voice recognition uh, and uh, like voice, I don't know what the right term is, but voice creation. So, you know, Text is not really text to speech because yeah. it's actually generated on the fly, but mm-hmm. you know, actually mimicking a human voice and having making it sound real, not like a robot. Yeah. Uh, and movement, you know, walking animations and uh, climbing animations, and you're hey, you're walking up a hill versus down a hill, or you're climbing over something. And the work that they've already done is absolutely amazing. And yeah, once you port that over, you know, even for like a filmmaker, if you wanted to get into Unity or Unreal. Uh, because you want to do one of those, you know, actually experiences, or you you just want to be, you know, doing a heavy VFX uh, kind of film yeah. without the need to actually edit in VFX, you can just have it in a game engine. And you just say, "I want an explosion here," and it just is an explosion. Um, mm. But making those tools as accessible as possible feels like it's necessary because you know, a lot of these smaller studios, these indie film dev or film developers that you know don't have often the biggest of budgets, yeah. they need to be able to access those tools and use them themselves.
1: Totally. And this stuff is, is becoming so accessible now. You know, I mean, one of the things that we've spoken about before is that as a filmmaker, as a, you know, as a professional using this kind of technology, you're always going to want to push the boundaries of system performance. You want, you know, powerful CPU, lots of memory, fast storage. You want all of that. But there's also the baseline to be able to use these, you know, games engines, for example, is relatively low, you know, just to be able to get the thing to work, to learn how to use it and produce models and create animation. It's a relatively low bar for you to be able to do that. So we're seeing this commoditization of the technology. And the interesting thing for me is that I'm I'm thinking that, I'm thinking about the coming of um, word processing systems, when people developed word processors, um, the you know the general consensus was that it was the the death of the publishing industry, because people were saying, well, now any, anyone can write a novel, and so what on what on earth will publishers do? And it turns out that beautifully laid out, cleanly designed font, rubbish writing is still it's still rubbish writing. You right. see, and what actually happened is it led to a beautiful explosion of publishing because. Now, authors that previously would have found it difficult to have their work taken seriously and discovered and, and be read found it easier to do that. And I think that, you know, we're seeing the commoditization of the production tools, of the, the technology to, uh, to develop our, our narrative content and our documentary content. But we're also seeing the commoditization of distribution. And even if you look at, I'm fascinated by the explosion of TikTok, for example. And you know everyone's doing dances and everything, but there's actually an awful lot of content on these social media platforms that is truly creative and original. And now that we're forced to go back to the darkroom in a sense, in the photographic sense, and use the um, animation tools that we've got, these game engines, the editing tools, uh, the photographic tools that we have to generate content, we actually don't need to go anywhere to share it with the world. You can upload short form content Put it out there and get demand for it, and there are a number of ways of monetizing it directly, which again was a huge hurdle for creatives historically. So I think we are beginning to see the commoditization of the entire end-to-end chain. It's the opposite of a vertical monopoly, and it's wonderful. It's like a petri dish for creativity.
0: I totally agree with you, absolutely on all of that, um, and I don't think it's going to affect the like Hollywoods, you know, as much. Oh. Like, I mean, right now I, I know like AMC is in talks with bankruptcy lawyers or supposedly you know so because no one can go to the theater uh but still Hollywood's gonna be around forever um Mm. you know we're still gonna have all the Marvel movies and all that uh but I mean it just makes me wonder how a lot of this is going to impact the um like the short narratives the short films I mean obviously those are very highly creative in their own way uh but with the ability for anybody to create content that is pretty good quality and, yeah. and to be able to express themselves creatively uh what do you think that's going to do for those like indie film devs
1: well you know one of my roles is i'm um chief innovation officer for filmdo.com uh, we have about a thousand um feature films um, goodness knows how many short films and we try to provide a platform for um, independent filmmakers to get their content out there the big challenge with short film content is that culturally, there's an expectation that you don't pay to watch short films. So um, the the primary, the primary uh, purpose of making an independent short film, there's kind of three purposes. You know one is the experience of the practice, another is um, that you're going to um, be discovered and you, you're, another is that you're going to collaborate, you're going to work with people and, and, and get known and develop a team. So uh, but making money is not really on the list. And so, one of the things that we do at FilmDo is aggregate collections of short films into feature-length presentations, which we then um, serve up, say, for example, to Amazon, and we give the bulk of the money to the filmmakers, so they actually can monetize their content. And the big challenge, and, and actually, the the reason that I originally started working with FilmDo was I was giving a presentation at a um, the Raindance Festival in London about the future of media technology. And I, I, I said as succinctly as I could that the, the flowering of the information age is, was access to big data, uh, but the fruit of the information age is the curation of that data. And so what we do at FilmDo, and, and what I think is crucial for filmmakers, is to, to find ways to be, to be discoverable when you produce really good work. And at the moment, the best ways that people have to control that is search engine optimization and how you approach that varies from platform to platform. People are really winging it. You know, they're they're doing their best. But we do need tools that make it easier for um, creatives to share their content. Now, I, I think we also need people to be. Profoundly realistic. You know, I'm a, I'm a, an optimistic realist, and I think that if you are a realist, you you automatically a, an honest realist, you automatically become optimistic because there's so much cause for hope in the world. But I think part of being a realist is looking at the work that you've done and realizing, oh, you know what, actually, uh, it's not very good. <laughs> you know the reason the reason I'm not super successful and Hollywood hasn't come calling is that that film that I made shows promise, but it's it's not an amazing film and you look at the work that some people produce and you realize my goodness that's my competition i really need to try harder and i think that there's a danger culturally that i mean it's kind of old news now but there's this danger that people get awards for participation you know and i actually think that we should be focusing our attention on collaboration and cooperation and the ways in which we can work together to produce greater work. As you know, Noam Chomsky said, every major achievement in the history of our species was the product of collaboration. And I think that we should focus a little bit less on individuals proving themselves to the world, a little bit more on individuals coming together to work um, as a collective, because that's how we support one another and allow ourselves to focus on one particular role that we're great at you know we had this development i remember at the bbc years ago there was this push for people to stop being just a camera operator or a director or producer they they um, started calling people predators there was a a producer editor and director and you are doing everything on the production but the truth is that a very tiny number of people can do that Uh, most people are really amazing at a small number of things and work really well as part of a cohesive group where other people are really good at another small number of things. And so if you can build that group mind together and produce content where you're playing to one another's strengths, uh, I think that's where the real potential lies. And that's why I'm excited to see, you know, with the remote working um, that we're forced into at the moment, we're seeing these approaches to creativity really growing.
0: Right. I mean, right now is... You know, it's really kind of, I mean, it's the best time ever in the history of the human race to collaborate because you can collaborate with anybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm here in Washington state, <laughs> you're in London, correct, London? I, I'm okay. actually, uh,
1: <laughs> right now I'm just outside of Buxton, a small town in the north of England. I'm in a farmhouse, um, as removed as you could be, but uh, here we are having a perfectly nice conversation.
0: <laughs> exactly, and, and you can do that. Like you're no longer stuck you know, with collaborating with whoever is immediately around you physically, you can collaborate with anybody. So you can find those people that actually match you in your own artistic style or, you know, your own goals and be able to collaborate with them. And to me, that's one of the most positive things I think is going to come out of all of this coronavirus lockdown things, just like you said a minute ago. yeah. Uh, Is there anything else that you think, you know, kind of we've got about another 10 minutes here. Uh, Is there anything else you think that is is a very positive uh, thing to take out of you know, everything that's going on in the world right now?
1: Oh, my goodness, shall I count the ways? I mean, there's so much good stuff happening, you know, but but let me begin by acknowledging the bad stuff, you know, because I think that, you know, one could understandably be accused of, um, of a kind of blind optimism, you know, what what's happening with the pandemic is clearly awful. And um, there's, you know, people are dying, and people are isolated and lonely, and there's a there's a lot of this that's incredibly challenging. Uh, acknowledging all of that, I think that um, what I'm what I'm really excited by is if you listen to the the dialogue, the chatter, the discussions, the comments that people are making, the focus is very strongly on. Uh, care and kindness and looking out for one another and sharing. And I think that there's a cynical version of that. You know, I I think uh, just about every company that's ever um, unwittingly put me on their mailing list has sent me an email telling me about what they're doing about the coronavirus. And by the way, here's a new service that they provide. And it's it's very cynical. Uh, But it's great because you realize, oh, I didn't realize I was on that newsletter. Now I can unsubscribe. (laughs) But there's, you know, the focus is on how can we help one another? And I and I think, at the risk of getting all poetic about it, I, you know, I, I truly believe that we are on the brink of a new golden age as a species. I really do. If you look at what's actually happening in the world, not the fear mongering and that, you know, in the Second World War, the UK press discovered that people bought more newspapers if they used panic inducing headlines. And the global media have been doing it ever since. And their goal is to make money, primarily, and secondarily to convey what's happening in the world. And that means that there's a conflict of interest, which is a bit of an issue. But uh, if you look at what's actually happening, the, the the minimal level of conflict in the world, the... the um, Goodness! The developments in emotional um, therapies, the developments in uh, in medical technologies, in, in every direction, education is absolutely phenomenal, and a big part of that is that we're really be- making headway with understanding ourselves, and understanding our needs and our nature, and I think that the you know I think that the key that opens that that lock to this new golden age is kindness. It's not a particular uh, spiritual outlook or, you know, a cultural presumption. It's it's about doing what's right for the other person, whether or not it's right for you. And what we're seeing with storytelling, you know, it's all, if you look at the, the films that people are making, and some of it's hilarious comedy, but a lot of it is about expanding empathy and expanding understanding. Now, you don't need empathy or compassion to be kind. You just have to choose to do what's right for the other person. You have to choose apt action. But for you to do that, to make those reasonable choices, you need time. You need to breathe. You need to think. You need to reflect. You need to get more sleep. And what we're seeing with people on lockdown, you know, my my brother's a great example. He uh, he would normally be commuting uh, quite a long way to get to his work. And uh, he's now uh, not making that commute. So he's actually getting a full eight hours sleep every night. And he's a changed man. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> this, um, I forget the name of the guy, gave a TED Talk uh, not too long ago. Uh, if you're familiar with TED.com, it's phenomenal. And he was talking about the impact of sleep and the studies that they've done. And it's really terrifying. You know, He says at the beginning, I'm going to terrify you with this presentation. You really need seven to nine hours sleep every night. And you better make sure that you sort it out but once you do begin to get more sleep it's you feel more conscious you feel more more awake and and counterintuitively you know when people talk about the development of consciousness the expansion of consciousness and from birth through early childhood up to adulthood our our range of awareness expands and expands until most people get to being aware of their nation state they don't uh, most people don't expand their their conscious awareness beyond the national borders but by having time to rest and reflect and feel more centered, people are expanding their awareness further afield and recognizing that, in some sense, we're all in this together. We're all impacted by one another. So, um, if you'll forgive me, getting all poetic about it, I think that the, the really positive development that I'm seeing as a consequence of this pandemic and the lockdown is—you know—this is the this is um, probably the first time in history that every nation has been faced with the same challenge. And in spite of the rhetoric in the media, it's not war. It's not a war. It's a challenge that we're all facing together. And the more that we support one another, the better. And that sense of inclusivity is going to emerge, I think, in our narratives, in our storytelling, and in our media. I've worked a lot with, um, you know, the... Women in Media Group and the Women in Film Group and uh, the Artists United Group, which have a very strong emphasis on gender equality in the media, and I'm a, uh, and that's something that's very important. All forms of equality are important to me. I think people that waste energy on isms are really missing, you know, they're missing a memo. But the what we're seeing is um, filmmakers, uh, male, female, LGBTQ, uh, you know, every ethnicity. People are conveying their stories without dealing day-to-day with the isms that they would normally be faced with. They're just not out there experiencing it. And so they're just telling their stories. They're not reacting to being under attack. They're just telling their stories, which, of course, are absolutely universally just human stories. And to go back to what we were saying about AI, you know, we don't need robots to look like people. We need them to sound like people and we need them to move like people and the media that people are creating is is universally accessible in those ways it doesn't matter if you're animating as pixar did you know animating a lamp jumping up and down on a ball or one of these extraordinary you know ray traced live animated um, animated movies it's just it's it has to look and move well it has to sound and and move in human ways to have a, a, a a compelling emotional narrative and all of this is just coming people are just free to experiment it's wonderful
0: yeah man it, it you know it really does you know with with how tough everything is right now for so many people it, it is good to be looking ahead and and yeah like like you said this is one of the first times that the whole world has been coming together to you know overcome a challenge and it's it's great to see that you know everyone can come together you know, at least in some amount and and you know, work on something together and collaborate and, you know, really connect uh, with each other.
1: Yeah. And with humor, you know, with humor and, and with grace. And we're seeing, as I said, you know, um, Elliot Grove, who uh, runs the Raindance Film Festival. I was um, hosting a panel with him years ago and we were talking about what are the most important things for filmmakers? What's the the number one important thing that you need to make sure you pay attention to? And one of my favorites is catering, you know? <laughs> you've gotta you've got to feed everybody, you know, it's really important on set. But Elliot Grove said it's distribution, because he was saying that, you know, if you don't have distribution for your content, you don't have a product, because the consumption of the product is the point at which someone pays money to see it or hear it, or, or digest it, engage with it. And I think what we're beginning to see, again, is this wonderful commoditization of distribution, it's not just YouTube, YouTube are great you know, in, in what they do in iTunes. Apple gets a really uh, you know they get a lot of criticism for iTunes, but my goodness, you know they just take 30%. Nobody only takes 30%. <laughs> That's a fantastic deal for content creators and yeah you, you know you can question a lot of um, a lot of their business ethics in lots of other ways. but uh, you know like we're doing with film do, we take the smaller part of the cut. Uh, we provide a very you know a very honest and fair uh, legal agreement that favors the filmmaker, the IP owner. Um, you know, Vimeo's great. They, they have a, 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 I think they're still doing a 90 ten deal where you produce your content and they only take 10% percent if you use their platform for um, uh, for distribution and transactions. I, I'm actually developing a product myself, which is a, a bit too top secret to go into detail, but let's say it's a, um how would I say? it's a filmmaker. It's a film, a film presentation service. Let's put it that way, uh, that I think will help a lot of indie filmmakers, particularly with short form content. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this stuff emerging. But what, another thing that we're seeing emerging is uh, cryptocurrencies, smart contracts, and uh, blockchain. These three technologies together enable people to transact immediately, efficiently, securely, um, safely, and um, to make very, very small transactions. At the moment, with the current banking system. Tiny transactions are not always uh, cost effective because of the cost of performing the transaction itself. But as we move towards uh, tiny particles of cryptocurrency being used uh, to transact, I think we're going to begin to see um, the implementation of sovereign identities where people have their data locked down, but uh, with controlled access online, but also anchored personal assets. So if you produce content, you can just send it out into the wild and it has an anchor owner so that anybody using it, you just automatically get revenue. Hmm. There's um, some really interesting developments in that direction to enable people to connect without any, um, let's say, no controlled infrastructure. And so it becomes, a, again, it becomes a kind of distributed network intelligence where people can can just move together in, in, and look at the content they want and the creator benefits immediately. And uh, that's a really interesting development.
0: And yeah, it, it's, it's exciting, everything that's going on. Uh, so unfortunately, we're hitting about time here. I'm sure we could keep talking for a couple of hours. <laughs> yes. uh, but before we uh, sign off, is there any, uh, like you already mentioned do that you are heavily involved in. Are there any other projects or websites or whatever that you uh, would encourage people to check out of your own work?
1: Well, thank you for asking. I, I, I suppose the main one that I would ask people to check out is um, the Creativity Conference website. So this is a a global meeting of minds that we're planning in 2021 to explore the quintessential essence of creativity. We're holding it at uh, Reykjavik University in Iceland. It is an absolutely gorgeous landscape. We're keeping the cost down as low as we can, and it's going to be uh, just an overwhelming uh, number of examples of creativity where we're not asking presenters to speak about their craft. We're asking them to speak about how they get into that state of mind in which something truly original can emerge, something that never existed before. And what is that for them? We're going to have dancers and painters and sculptors and musicians and actors and filmmakers and drone pilots, you name it. It's going to be installation art. So the website is creativityconference.is. IS is the Icelandic domain extension. I post stuff on my website, maximjago.com. And uh, just keep an eye out for the film dot is. Uh, this is going to be—it's it's nothing there right now, but it's going to be um, a new film distribution platform fairly soon. Those are probably the three main ones.
0: Well, thank you once again for everybody listening, and thank you a huge amount, Maxim, for coming on here uh, with everything with everything that's going on right now. It's it's great to be able to get people on and uh, just talk about the positive side of things, and you know, acknowledge the hardships, uh, but really. Look forward and the positivity. You know what's going on. So thank you once again.
1: Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Okay, and for everyone listening, uh, hopefully you enjoyed, and we will get you on the next podcast. Bye.